1: with Dr. Frank Turek. What makes love possible? That's one of the questions we're going to deal with today. In fact, I've had so many guests on in recent weeks. Uh, including Robbie Zacharias and John Lennox and Michael Heiser and others. I haven't been able to get to many of your questions, but we're going to try to get to some of your questions that you've emailed me at hello at crossexamine.org today. Here are some of the questions we're going to get to. I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but this is what I've got lined up in the queue. Is love possible if atheism is true? Unless you observe it directly, do you have to have faith to believe it? Why pray? When all these shootings keep happening, it doesn't just appear like God's doing anything. How can we love America when it's, the, when, when its founders, our founders, America's founders were slave owners? And why do we say that the God of the Bible is the ground of morality? Where do we get that from? Is once saved always saved true? What about those who fall away? They make a profession as young people, and you know, by the time they hit 20 or 25, they're atheists. What about them? Did we create God or did God create us? And is it arrogant and pompous to say that you're right and everybody else who disagrees with you is wrong? Those are some of the questions I hope to get to today. As I say, we'll try and get to as many as we can. And If you have a question, you can send it to hello at crossexamine.org. I got a nice uh, kind of question slash uh, series of uh of comments from Dan Stevens, who writes this Frank, we know morality is not possible without God. Building upon that, wouldn't love for any other reason be an inconsistent action for an atheist? If we're all just moist robots, could love even be love as we just be reacting, not reasoning out of our choices, in order to show love to others? Love would appear to fly in the face of atheism. It is not consistent with survival when we lay aside our needs and desires to attempt to meet those of another, it may not be that important, but I haven't heard this pursuit by any apologists. And I believe that it has some value as I'm sure that almost anyone we debate or converse with would claim to love others, but I do not believe that they could logically justify doing so unless they were created by God. Well, there's a lot going on here, Stephen. Let me just mention a couple things. First of all, If we are moist robots, as I've said so many times on this program, as atheists, in effect, are admitting by their ideology of materialism, if every thought we have and every action we take is simply physics, blind physics, then not only is love not possible, any moral choice isn't possible. Any argument isn't possible because we're not really following reason, we're not really really following morality, we're not really making choices either to be reasonable or to be moral if everything is controlled by the laws of physics. So the universal acid is really is really atheistic materialism, it cuts through everything. It 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 destroys our ability to justify anything we think or anything we do. So yes, love would not exist if atheistic materialism is true, just like any choice wouldn't really exist because love is a choice to seek what's good uh, in the person loved. And of course that presupposes you have a choice. It also presupposes what good is and good wouldn't exist unless God existed, not in an objective way anyway. So yes, Stephen, I think you're right about this. Love would not exist Without God, of course, it wouldn't exist without some kind of plurality in the Godhead either. Why? Because if there was nothing created and God was this purely monotheistic being, then there would be no one to love and there would be no lover because there is nothing to love. But in the Trinity, you have a lover, a loved one and a spirit of love. So love existed prior to creation because God is a loving being himself within the Trinity And the Trinity, of course, as we've talked about on this program before, is a model for relationships, if you will, that in order to love somebody, you have to be able to make a choice, of course, and you have to have a lover and a loved one. And Paul talks about the idea that, uh, I think it's in Ephesians 5 or Ephesians 6, that we ought to look at Christ as the head of our relationship, particularly our relationship with our spouse. And so this is this this can all be uh, analogized from the Trinity. In any event, I digress there. Stephen goes on to say, second thought, the more I study apologetics and reason, though positions that people take and reason through positions that people take, I consistently find myself going back to the origin of the universe. I find that every belief that a person has rests upon their worldview of existence, although most people are quite inconsistent. Yes, true. He goes on to say, as we converse or debate Would I be right in directing every conversion or conversation, I should say, back that way? In other words, to the cosmological argument? Well, maybe. In fact, uh, if you look at Aquinas' argument for God, arguments for God, his five ways, most of those arguments are variations on the cosmological argument. That basically, you're getting back to existence. Why does anything exist? In fact, Leibniz asked the question, if there is no God, why does anything exist? Or he said it this way, if there is no God... Um, if there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? And in regular language, you could say, if there is no God, why does anything exist? Why does anything exist if there is no God? Ultimately, you're back to two possibilities for the created world. Either mind gave rise to matter or matter gave rise to mind. Now, matter itself had a beginning. We know that. Second law of thermodynamics shows us that. Matter can't exist eternally. Also, matter is composed, so there must be a composer to put it together. If that is indeed the case, and it seems to be, matter is not ultimate. Mind is ultimate. Mind brought forth matter, not the other way around. And so, ultimate reality is a mind, an immaterial intellect. That's what we mean when we say God. God. Now, sometimes atheists will say, well, there's no evidence for God. Now, when they say that, I don't want to just come back and try and give them evidence. I want to ask them this question. First of all, you could ask them, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by evidence? And what do you mean by there's no evidence for God? How'd you come to that conclusion? You could go that route. But I like to say this, when they say there's no evidence for God, I ask them, why is there evidence for anything? Why is there evidence for anything? Why is there evidence that two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen gives you water? Well, you can do it over and over again and you can observe it. Yeah. Why can you observe things? And why do you think that your observations are telling you the truth about the world external to your skull, the real world out there? You're making assumptions that this is a reasonable world and a consistent world, that things operate by certain cause and effect. And that if tomorrow, if you put two part hydrogen and one part oxygen together, you'll get water again. And it was the same way yesterday. You're assuming this is a reasonable, orderly world and that your mind is reasonable And it's put together in such a way that it can yield truth about the real world. Well, that's better explained by theism than by nothing. It's better explained by a mind than by nothing. In fact, our mind is made in the image of the great mind. So why is there evidence for anything? Because this is an orderly world. And if there's there's order in the world, there must be an orderer, an ultimate orderer. A, why does anything exist at all? And B, why is it not just chaos if it did exist? It's not chaotic. The world has order to it. It has design to it. So there must be a designer, it seems. That's the best, or the inference to the best explanation. He goes on to say, and this is the, the questioner, Stephen, again. Third, am I correct in asserting that every person has a faith position? Essentially, that we're all religious. If something is to be scientific, doesn't it have to be observable, testable, or duplicatable? Or repeatable, he might say. And let me say at this point, No. Because forensic science can't observe necessarily and test something and repeat something. Like if you're J. Warner Wallace and you're trying to find why this dead body has been discovered, why is it dead? um, You can't go resurrect the body, go back in time and see what happened to it. You've got to use clues. You've got to use evidence that's left behind to try and discover what happened. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a faith position. It means that we might be using certain principles to get at the past that we can't use by going into the laboratory and doing something repeatable over and over and over and over again. In fact, we'll get to it right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, org. So check that out and get our app. Two words in the App Store, Cross-Examined. I'm back in two minutes.
0: Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button. Or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. You're listening to I
1: Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist on the American Family Radio Network. And the crossexamined.org podcast, we now have called it I don't have enough I don't have enough faith to be an atheist because I think more people understand the content than just cross examined So if you haven't signed up for our app, you need to do that. Two words in the app store cross examined And if you haven't signed up for this feed, this iTunes feed, go to I don't have enough faith to be an atheist to do that. And uh like that particular feed. The other one, the one that just has a CE on it as of September 1st, will no longer be updated. We're trying to migrate everybody to the one podcast because you can get this podcast in two places, which really pre- pre- uh, presents a problem because despite the fact that a lot of people have uh, seem to be listening to this, they're not all in one place, which may- means it won't show up higher in the ratings, which means fewer people will see it. So if you don't mind uh, moving on over and uh, subscribing to the I don't have enough faith to be an atheist version of this podcast, it would be very helpful. And thank you continually for putting up very positive reviews. I go up there and read them on occasion. I want to thank you very much for doing that because it helps more people see this podcast as it's rated highly, or when it's rated highly by a lot of people. So so please do that for us, if you don't mind. Again, it's called, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. All right, let me go back to Stephen's question, or Dan Stephen's questions, actually. He was trying to say that, does it have to be observable, detestable, or repeatable in order to be science? No, because there's forensic science out there. So it's not a faith position when you say, it looks like this particular body was murdered rather than, say, it was a the body died because of some sort of natural cause, or it's it's not repeatable to say if you're walking along the beach and you see John loves Mary in the sand, it's not necessarily repeatable to go back and witness John or Mary writing that in the sand, but it is a good inference to the best explanation to say that whenever I see John loves Mary or any message written in the sand, you know it has to be an intelligent being. And that's what we do to get at the past. It's called the principle of uniformity, that, that causes in the past were like those in the present. If John Loves Mary requires an intelligent being right now, then something like John Loves Mary in the past would also require an intelligent being in the past. So even though I wasn't there to witness it, it's not completely a faith position to say that when I say it had to have been a... Intelligent being who wrote John Loves Mary in the Sand at some point ago. It's not entirely a faith position because I have evidence right now that it requires an intelligent being to create something like John Loves Mary. I mean, if faith means without empirical proof, empirical proof meaning you're observing it at the time, okay, but it's not a faith position to say that when we have evidence that the universe had a beginning, then it requires a beginner. It's not a faith position to say that if John Loves Mary is in the sand, then therefore. Uh, It had to be an intelligent being. We're using the principle of uniformity and the inference to the best explanation to discover what caused a particular effect in the past, rather than a direct, repeatable observation. That's, That's one very valuable kind of science. Remember, we've talked about it before. There are two kinds of science. There's empirical science that you can repeat over and over again, and then there's there's historical, or we might say forensic science. You can't repeat it over and over again, but you can use clues to discover what happened in the past. Uh, And Dan goes on to say that uh, he's a chaplain for uh, nearly 125 high school kids, and he's been using our material as well as Jim Wallace's material, William Lane Craig, Robbie Zacharias, Greg Kochel, and others. And so he's very complimentary on the work that we're doing and these other apologists are doing. So thank you so much, Dan, for writing in. I hope that uh, helps. I also, want to write, uh, I also want to deal with a question that Luna writes in. Luna writes in and says, uh, since these shootings have been happening more and more, how exactly does prayer help? I mean, people are dying anyway, and sometimes I wonder if God will do anything at all if we focus our prayers on situations like this. Well, let me say this. Um, these are tragic shootings, as you know. I mean, any time there's an innocent person who are, who is killed inside or outside the womb, it's tragic. And it's a good question you ask, Luna, but let me say this. We don't know if or how much God directly intervenes. How many shootings... Or evil events has he prevented through the persuasion of his Holy Spirit? There's no way of knowing because we don't have the, that kind of knowledge. If the shootings haven't happened because of God intervening, we wouldn't know they haven't happened, right? Maybe God has, through his persuasive Holy Spirit, prevented a number of shootings Not, without taking over someone's free will. He just somehow arranges events or his Holy Spirit goes to a person and prevents a shooting, he, he may be doing this repeatedly. We just wouldn't know because the shootings haven't happened. And since we only know a minuscule amount of what's going on and why, and since every event and every decision ripples forward to affect billions of other events and decisions, we are not in a position to say prayers are not working. We're not. I mean, we might also ask this question, working according to whose standard or, 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 or what outcome? When we pray, we pray God's will be done, not necessarily our will be done. Are you saying that it's God's will that that people are shot? No, no, no. I'm not saying it's God's will that people are shot, but it is God's will that he gives us free will so we can make moral choices. If God always prevented evil, then we wouldn't really be free. And this wouldn't be a moral universe where love and redemption could exist, because without free will, we can't love. And we can't be redeemed because there's nothing to be redeemed about if we're not, if we're just robots, <laughs> we don't need to be redeemed. So this is a real moral universe. And for me, anyway, the ripple effect is an insight I learned. I think I was maybe reading something from William Lane Craig on this, and it, it, it really opened my mind to the, when you, you look at some of these tragic events and you go, how could any good come out of this? There's no way we can see. But that doesn't mean God can't bring good out of it. I mean, a tragic tragedy, when tragedy strikes, whether somebody just dies naturally or somebody dies at the hands of evil, we we might not be able to see any good coming out of it. But through the ripple effect, there could be great good coming out of it now and in the future. Maybe through the ripple effect, uh, an awful tragedy that occurs today ripples forward into the future. It brings forth a great evangelist who saves millions of people You know, 500 years from now. we We can't see that. How many things occurred in the ancient past that are rippling forward today and helping to cause certain things? We can't see that. All of us are products of the ripple effect. Think about if your parents never met, you wouldn't be here. How did they meet? Well, there's a whole ton of things that had to occur, a whole number of events and decisions that had to happen for them to even meet. And maybe they met as a result of tragedies that happened in the past. We can't trace all that. All we can do is we know that there's good out there. In fact, a lot of times we ask the question, why is there evil? Very few people ask why is there good? Of course, you wouldn't have evil unless you had good. Evil doesn't make any sense unless good exists because evil is a privation in good. Evil is like cancer. If you take all the cancer out of a good body, you got a better body. If you take all the body out of the cancer, you got nothing. In other words, evil doesn't exist on its own. It only exists if good exists. So if you're going to say a shooting is evil and we all are, then we have to assume good exists. But good only exists if God exists. So we don't get rid of God by saying, well, he hasn't answered this prayer or he hasn't done things the way I wanted him to do, or he hasn't stopped all evil. In fact, I remember way long time ago, I was at Michigan State, and I'd gone through a uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist presentation, and I knew there was a militant atheist in the audience because he, he had a scowl on his face, the whole two-hour presentation. And as soon as uh, the Q&A started, I knew he was going to have to say something. So I said, are there any questions? He shot his hand up. I said, yes, sir. He said, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? I said, sir, that is an excellent question. Maybe because if he did, he might start with you and me because we do evil every day. You ever think about that? Whenever we complain about evil, we never complain about ourselves doing evil, but we do evil every day. We're always thinking about somebody else. Stop him. Stop her. If God wanted to stop all evil, he could, he could just take away our free will. He could, he could just kill us all. Then evil would go away. But no, this is a moral universe where you can make choices for good or for bad. And in that sense, love can exist. Of course, evil can exist as well. God, however, can redeem it. In fact, God promises to redeem it. Now, I gave him a much longer answer after that. I don't have time to get into it here. But part of it had to do with the ripple effect. And if you want to read more about that, get the book Stealing from God. I have a whole chapter on this. Stealing from God, why atheists need God to make their case. All right, next question. How can we love America when its founders were slave owners? Well, my friend, Dr. Michael Brown, who I've had on this program several times before, has a column this week. It's called, uh, I Am Not Dreaming of a White America. And let me agree with what he says here. He says, I believe it's an opportune time to denounce white nationalism. It is un-American, it is un-Christian, and it is deadly. America's greatness is not color-based. It's not ethnically driven. America's greatness is derived from the vision of our founders, a vision that was largely Christian, driven by biblical principles. Because of those principles, the founders could write, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These truths were not only self-evident to the extent that there was a benevolent and just creator. Without him, this entire sentence, which forms the philosophical linchpin of the Declaration of Independence, would disappear. It is because of these biblically-based principles that we were able to break free from the horrors of slavery and push back against the evils of segregation. And it is based on these principles that we continue to fight against injustice, oppression, racism, and whatever other evils remain present in our country. But none of this has to do with skin color or ethnic origins. Instead, it has to do with people coming together to live as Americans, not primarily as Europeans living in America or Asians living in America or Africans living in America, but Simply as Americans. That means that whites should not have a vision of a white America or blacks uh, of a black America or Hispanics of an Hispanic America. That's Michael Brown, by the way, and is, it's over at stream.org. Go to stream.org. Why I am not dreaming of a white America. That's from Michael Brown. You can read the whole column, enough time to get into it here, but. Let me agree with that and say this. The moral principles of our founding documents are sound and good, even if our behavior hasn't always lived up to those sound and good moral principles. This is why when people say the country is evil because the founders had slaves, they're missing the point. All countries and all people are evil if you simply look at what their people do. Because we're all fallen and we all sin. It's the ideals of our nation that are admirable. And we should urge one another to live up to those ideals. What other nation has these ideals? Nobody. Protesting the flag, therefore, in my view, is not the way to promote change. The flag and the ideals it represents are not the problem. It's the behavior of certain people that don't live up to those ideals that are the problem. So if you want to love America... Love the ideals America stands for, but try and correct the bad behavior of all of us. That's the way to make an improvement, not to protest the flag. All right, I'm Frank Turk. I'm back in just two minutes. Don't go away. Welcome back to Cross Examine. With Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Actually, we've renamed this podcast and radio program. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. With Frank Turek, website crossexamine.org. We were just before the break talking about America and uh, can we actually um, can we love America when its founders were slave owners? Well, first of all, most of the slave uh, most of the founders knew slavery was wrong. Thomas Jefferson knew it was wrong, even though he had slaves. Uh, and, and I mean, you can read about this if, if you want. Uh, but all of us have behaved badly. Uh, many times we behave badly every single day. But that doesn't mean that the principles that we might believe in are bad. Same thing is true with the country. What we put in our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution and many of our laws are good moral principles yeah, some we do have some bad laws now. We are actually advocating evil in certain areas, but generally, uh going back to our founding, our country is a country that stood for good and moral principles, just and moral principles. If you're going to say that the country's bad because there were bad people in it or we tolerated a certain amount of evil, well, then every country's evil, every country's bad, but our ideals are good. Our ideals are good. In fact, this is true in uh, in the Bible. I mean, look at G- Jesus' lineage. Look at the people in Jesus' bloodline. There are many evil people in Jesus' bloodline. In fact, that's one of the ways I know this is not a made-up story. There's too many embarrassing details in the New and the Old Testaments. I mean, Israel itself, they're, they're gold medal winners in sin, right? <laughs> I mean, this is not an attractive picture. When you have the, the people in the bloodline of the Messiah actually exceeding uh, what would be considered normal sin to Olympic quality sin. I mean, these people are murdering one another, adultery, and the, the king of Israel is committing adultery. David is committing adultery and then killing the, uh, the husband of Bathsheba, the one he commits adultery with. I mean, this is not a made-up story. It's just telling the truth. That's why we need a savior. So... I just find it odd that people want to protest the country when, in fact, the country, what it stands for is good, even though we don't always live up to those standards. So we have to continue to encourage one another to live up to those standards, even if – um, well, let me put it another way. We have to encourage one another to live up to those standards, but saying that the country is – is founded on bad principles is false. It's founded on actually good principles. I mean, how can we love America when its people commit abortion? In fact, actually, I would argue our founders were more moral than we were. Both slavery and abortion are evil. But in abortion, you're actually killing somebody. Now, while our founders knew slavery was wrong, they practiced it anyway. We know abortion's wrong. There's no no excuse anymore. I mean, we know medically what's going on there. There's sonograms, there's heartbeats, but we, we murder the unborn anyway. And many of the people lecturing our country are so-called pro-abortion, pro-choice. They're lecturing our country that we're evil while they're advocating that we murder our unborn. Yeah, I don't, it's, it, it, we should call out people when they're not obeying the moral law, when they're not obeying the principles of the country, um, but some people have blood on their hands while they're doing that. And they shouldn't be. Also want to mention, by the way, that we're starting um, another version of why I still don't have enough faith to be an atheist this September. And uh, if you want to take the entire course and take the premium version, you're going to be live on the course with me during the Zoom Q&A sessions. That's the advantage of the premium course. I think we're on together seven or eight times on Zoom for an hour, hour and a half Q&A, live Q&A. We'll see one another. You can ask questions. We can ask questions of one another, too. We'll learn from one another. That's the premium version of why I still don't have enough faith to be an atheist. 12-week course starts in mid-September. Go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses, if you want to be a part of that. But sign up soon for the premium version, because uh, we only take so many students in there. And uh, once it's full, it's full. Okay? You can take the basic version anytime you want. It's self-paced. But if you want to be part of the premium version and interact with me online via Zoom video, then take the premium version quickly. Sign up for it at crossexamined.org. Click on online courses. also want to mention, by the way, this coming week, uh, the 11th, next, that's tomorrow, Saturday is the 10th. That's today. Tomorrow, the 11th, I'm going to be at Abundant Life Christian Church. Abundant Life Christian Church in Holbrook, New York. That's out on Long Island. All right. 11 a.m. service. Details are on our website. Next week, I'll be in J, Georgia. That's about 60 miles north of Atlanta. I thought it was closer, but it's actually about 60 or so miles north of Atlanta, maybe a little bit further. Uh, and it's not far from Chattanooga, Tennessee, either. I'll be there Saturday for the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist uh, presentation. We'll have plenty of Q&A as well from like 10 to 3. We have lunch right in the middle at noon. And then the next day, I'll be at Pleasant Grove Baptist Church in Ellijay, Georgia, as well for their 11 a.m. service. All the details are on our website, crossexamined.org. So check all that out. All right. Let me uh, go to another question. This comes from JP. JP says, I listen to your program whenever I'm able to. I hear you often make assertions about Christianity, atheism, and morality. Hopefully they're not just assertions, but there's arguments behind them. You say that morality comes from the God of the Bible. I'm wondering what evidence do you have for that conclusion? Uh, Good question. How did you conclude that the God of the Bible is where morality comes from? Well, let me put it this way: the the ground of morality is whoever is the being who is all just, all good, all knowing, all powerful, etc. Now that being turns out to be the triune God of the Bible. I'm not just asserting it; that's what the our book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Goes through. We start at truth to even believe in truth, and we all we wind up that the fact that the Bible is the Word of God. We go through twelve steps to do this, or twelve points to do this. So I don't have time to do it all here on the. Uh, On the program. But let me boil it down to four basic questions. The four basic questions you need to investigate to see if Christianity is true are these. Does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament telling us the truth about the resurrection? Because if the answer is yes to those four questions, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament telling us the truth about the resurrection? If the answer to those four questions is yes, then mark it down. Christianity is true and the Bible is true. There's a series of dominoes that falls after that. Okay? I don't have time to go into it right now, but those are the four main questions that are further uh, expounded upon, or the argument is tighter through these 12 points we have, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, but those are the four basic questions. Truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. Now, if you can show that truth exists, that God exists, that miracles are possible, and Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, because if Jesus rose from the dead... Whatever Jesus teaches, because he's God if he rose from the dead, he predicted and accomplished his own resurrection, whatever Jesus teaches is true. Jesus taught the entire Old Testament is the word of God. So if the New Testament's reliable, you get the Old Testament thrown in, okay? Because Jesus is our authority here. Why do I believe in the authority of the Old Testament? Because Jesus did. I just have a personal policy. If somebody rises from the dead, I just believe whatever the guy says. Okay. And he promised the new Testament. He said his disciples or his apostles would write the new Testament. And the only writings we have from the apostles or people that knew the apostles are the 27 books of the new Testament. So that's why I think that the God of the Bible is the ground of morality. Now, what does that mean? It means that God's nature is good and his Commands flow from his nature. Or you say, well, sometimes his commands change. Well, commands can change, but the value behind the command can't change. God doesn't change, but his commands can change. Why? Because the situation changes. Just like um, our our, uh, parents might change commands with us. But the value behind the command is the same. So, for example, when you're a small child, your parents going to say, stay out of the street. Why? Because your, your, parent, your parents love you, and they don't want you to get hurt. The command, stay out of the street, is an expression of love. Well, when you hit 18, your parents say, get out on the street and get a job. The value is the same. The value is because they love you. They want you to be successful. They want you to get out and, and, and make a living. That's a good thing. But the command has changed. So commands can change based on the situation, but the value behind the command doesn't change. Love is the value behind both of those commands. Same thing is true with God. God in the Old Testament had a certain situation going on and he had different commands in some respects. Not all the commands are different. But then when he gets to the New Testament, he says, love one another as I have loved you. That's that's the one new command I give you. So. The point here is, is that someone has to be the ground of morality. If there is no God, there is no ultimate right or wrong. Now, is it possible that God exists, but he's not the God of the Bible? Bible, Yes. Yes, that's possible. But from looking at the evidence, the God of the Bible turns out to be the true God. And if he's the true God, then he is the ground of morality. Now, again, all the details are in the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So if you want to go further, JP, you can. But check that out if you will. All right. Another question. This comes from Vinny. Vinny says, Frank, my wife and I were discussing the concept of once saved, always saved. Is it possible to lose your salvation? Imagine a teenager sincerely coming to God and accepting Jesus as Lord, but later in his twenties becomes an atheist, denies God, no longer believes or wishes to be a Christian. When this guy dies, does he go to heaven? Seems like a dilemma on one hand. No one can snatch him from his hand once you have believed, but can you willingly deny the gift? It seems in God's nature to allow free choice or free will and a choice. If you don't want to be with God, he won't force you. I'd love to hear your perspective. He's reading the book and he's so far 200 pages in. He likes the book. Okay. Uh, Now, Christians obviously argue over this, uh, but there's a key phrase you have in here. You say... um, Imagine a teenager sincerely coming to God and accepting the Lord Jesus, but later becomes an atheist. Well, the question is, does he sincerely come to God? Well, that's a question. If it's once saved, always saved, and he's an atheist now, well, probably not. I guess he didn't come to faith. In fact, how do I, why do I say that, that once saved, always saved? Well, it seems to me this is what Jesus teaches. In John 5, 24, he says this. He says, he who believes has passed from death into life. In other words, you get eternal life when you believe you you don't get it when you die. You get it when you believe. And if it's eternal, by definition, you can't lose it. How can you lose eternal life? It goes on forever, right? And it's not just an expression of endless time. It's actually a quality. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in uh, John chapter 17 says, now this is eternal life that they may know you they meaning us, the, the believers that would come, that they may know you, the father and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Notice he says, this is eternal life is knowing God, knowing the father through Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. It's not a, not a quantity. It's a quality. And so it begs the question when you say, suppose he sincerely accepts God Well or accepts Christ. Maybe he hasn't. I mean, if once saved, always saved is true. He hasn't. Or he has accepted him and he's going to come back later. Anyway, we'll finish this thought right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Website,
0: crossexamined.org. Back in two minutes. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type Cross-Examined or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. I
1: don't know if you noticed, ladies and gentlemen, but we had a podcast last week, a radio program last week, related to Joshua Harris, the former pastor, and obviously Christian who Wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Well, apparently he kissed not only dating goodbye, he kissed his wife goodbye, their three children, and um, kissed Christianity goodbye. Well, actually, I I hope he's still in his children's life. Um, And now he says, look, I'm not a Christian anymore, and he's supporting LGBTQ plus uh, behavior. And we talked about this all last week, so I can't go into everything again. If you want to listen to the podcast last week, it's called Leaving Christianity for Sex. In any event, just this past week, he, on the Christian Post, he went to a LGBTQ pride parade and put up a couple of uh, pictures. So he's gone from somebody who believed that it was just... Proper to have sex within a marriage of a man and a woman to now, now actually promoting uh, sex outside of marriage and even homosexual sex outside of marriage. Um, and as we pointed out last time, even if you leave the issues aside as to whether they're right or wrong, he's changed his moral perspective like 180 degrees here. And my question is, by what standard are you now judging these certain moral behaviors as correct moral behaviors? Now, he hasn't commented much on this at all. That's so I'm not going to comment any further. I'm just pointing out that if you're going to say you were wrong as a Christian before and now you're right with certain moral behaviors that you're now supporting, that Christian sexual morality does not support. You've now adopted a new standard. The question is, where does that standard come from? Who is this standard? Are you going to say there's a God out there that says same-sex behavior is right? Well, who is this God? and What evidence do you have for him? Otherwise, everything's a matter of opinion. So I just wanted to point that out. That, And you need to pray for Joshua Harris and his family. I just want to point that out that he's now going to pride parades and saying now this is a good thing. Well, that implies there's a standard outside of himself. What is that standard? Back to once saved, always saved. It's not just John 5, 24. I think Romans 8 seems to teach this, that once you're called and you're justified, then you're saved. Same thing in Ephesians 1. So I would say that if somebody appeared to be a believer at one point, there's two possibilities. It's not a believer now. or says not a believer now. Either A, they weren't a believer truly. They weren't sealed with the Holy Spirit, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. Or they were, and they've just... They haven't lost their justification. Now they're, they've just lost their sanctification. And at some point they're going to come back or God may give them up. And as Paul talks about, and I think it's in first Corinthians five, that God may take them out of this life right now. So they don't go any further. they will still be saved, but they'll be saved as a man going through a fire gets through the fire with just the, the clothes on his back. No rewards at all. So, that's how I would answer that. Now, there may be other arguments that people want to give that, no, you're not always saved. Once you're saved, I actually think the arguments are better that for the reasons I just gave, that once you're saved, you're always saved. Okay, Vinny, hope that helps. Let me now go to a question from Kadren, who writes this. Hello, Frank. I've been witnessing to this older gentleman gentleman for quite a long time. Today, uh, I asked him your question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? He responded that no, he would not because I was just going on the assumption that Christianity is true. I said, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just asking if it were true, would you become a Christian? He said, no. He said that he would not believe that Religions are true, only that they are beliefs that people have because it gives them comfort or an answer to many questions in this confusing life. He says that it is very arrogant and pompous of me to insist that my beliefs are the truth and everybody else is wrong who disagrees with me. I am at a loss as how to respond to this statement. And as we like to debate back and forth, I know it's going to come up again. I'd really appreciate if you give me a help, helpful answer for this. I would also appreciate prayers for this man. And he goes on. OK, yeah, we should pray. Absolutely for this guy. And I hope our listeners will as well. Um, but the key thing you need to know, I think, in dealing with claims, counterclaims to Christianity, the most important thing you need to know, because I it's used over and over again, is something that we call the roadrunner tactic in the book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And all it does is you apply the claim to itself. So if somebody says there's no truth, you're going to say, is that true? If somebody says all truth is relative, you're going to say, is that a relative truth? Somebody says there are no absolutes, you're going to say, are you absolutely sure? Because that's an absolute right there. In other words, it's a self-defeating statement. To say some of these things I've just said. It's also self-defeating to say I can't speak a word in English because I'm using English to say it. And it turns out that what this gentleman has uttered here, Kadron, is a self-defeating statement. For example, he said he says that it is very arrogant and pompous of me to insist that my beliefs are the truth and that everybody else is wrong and disagrees with me. All right. If you turn the claim on itself, then you want to ask him this question. Are you arrogant and pompous for insisting that your beliefs are the truth and everyone else is wrong who disagrees with you? Because he's doing the same thing. He's saying he's right about religions and you're wrong. You're saying you're right about religions and he's wrong. He thinks you're wrong for saying other people are wrong, in other words. Then why isn't he wrong for saying you're wrong? All truth excludes its opposite. Timothy Keller, who you ought to follow on Twitter, uh, has a recent tweet from a few days back. He says, it is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that your way to think about religions is right. Yeah, That's exactly what this guy's doing. He thinks he's right about religions. Well, how does he know he's right? And by the way, truth is not pompous or arrogant. Pompous or arrogant are attributes of an attitude, or let me put it another way. Someone can be pompous or arrogant, but truth is not pompous or a- arrogant. Pompous or arrogant are, are adjectives or descriptions of an attitude someone have, might have, and it might have nothing to do with whether they're, they're right or wrong. I mean, you can be pompous and arrogant and be wrong, of course. And you can be pompous and arrogant and be right. You can be humble and kind and be wrong, or you can be humble and kind and be right. Now, obviously, out of those four choices, what do you want to be? You want to be humble and kind and right. But humble and kind are descriptions of an attitude that the person has. They're not descriptions or they're not adjectives of truth. Truth is truth. People may hold certain attitudes, But truth doesn't. It's true or it's not true, regardless of what your attitude is about it. So, yeah, sure. People can be arrogant and pompous and be right. You don't want to be. You want to be right, but you don't want to be arrogant and pompous. You want to be humble and kind. Now, if you have to choose... Well, you, you shouldn't have to choose. <laughs> I was going to say if you have to choose between being pompous and arrogant and tr- and right, would you rather have that or be humble and kind and wrong? Well, I'd rather have neither. But truth is more important than anything, because the truth will set you free. If you don't have the truth, you're not going to be set free. And Jesus said the truth will set you free. By the way, what does that imply? It implies that if you don't have the truth, you're in bondage. And you are, you're in bondage to your own sin and the own co- and your own consequences of that sin. The consequences that will come if you don't have somebody else pay the price for you. And that's what Christianity is all about. It's all about redemption. Paradise lost in Genesis is paradise regained in Revelation. Everything in between is a story of redemption. And if you don't have somebody to redeem you, you're going to be lost. Even if you're kind and humble, you're going to be lost. Even if you're truth and arrogant, you're going to be lost. Even I should say, if you're pompous and arrogant, you're going to be lost. You have to have the truth and the truth will set you free. So turn the claim on itself, Cadron, and just ask him, is he pompous or arrogant? Let me say one other thing too uh, about this. Notice that in here, he says it's a comfort, that religion is just about a comfort. Well, it might be just about a comfort, but that doesn't mean it's false to say that religions are, a certain religion is comfortable. It might be comfortable and true. It might be comfortable and false. Again, comfort is not a descriptor of, of a truth claim. It may be comforting to the person, but it may be true or false. It's independent of that. We might also say that atheism is comfortable, or believing that any religion is true is comfortable. That's probably the most comfortable. Yeah, any religion. Yeah, you can get there anyway. Yeah, that's very comfortable, but it's not true. Taking drugs may be comfortable, but it will destroy you ultimately. Comfort is not necessarily a test for truth. So atheism might be comfortable to people. Why? Because then they think, well, there's not going to be anybody to judge me. There's not going to be anybody that says I have to live a certain way. I can live my own way. And I'm convinced that many of the people that I talk to, actually, I'm convinced because they tell me when I ask them if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And they say, no, I know it's not the intellect in their way. Because if it were true and it was just an intellectual issue, they would accept Christianity. They would accept Christ, but they don't accept Christ. Why? They don't want to. They don't want there to, want there to be a God because they want to be God of their own lives. It's comfortable to say there's no God sometimes because then you get to be the boss. You get to do what you want to do. There's not going to be any accountability. You get to lie, cheat, and steal if you want to, and nobody's ever going to hold you accountable. Certainly not in heaven. And if they don't catch you here, not here either. So comfort isn't a test for right and wrong or true or false. So I would make those points in a non-pompous, non-arrogant way, if you can. Just ask him questions, Kadron. Are you being pompous and arrogant? And why do you think pompous and arrogant are attributes of truth? They may be attributes of people who are professing truth, but they're not the attributes of truth themselves. So I hope that helps, Kadron. And if you'd like to ask a question, I'll try and get to it on the air. Just go to your email box and type in hello at crossexamine.org and I'll try and get to it. Friends, great being with you. Don't forget, this Sunday, I'm going to be up in Holbrook, New York at Abundant Life Church. You can see the details on our website. And next week, the 17th and 18th of August, I'll be in Ellijay, Georgia, at a, a church there, both Saturday and Sunday. Check the website for details.
0: We hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. If you think our podcast needs to reach more people, here's what you can do to help. Go to iTunes and type cross Examined official podcast, four words in the search bar, and leave us a five-star rating. It'll take you less than five seconds. And if you have a few more seconds to spare, leave us a positive review. The best reviews will be featured on future episodes. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. God bless.